sometimes there's moments in our world that require us to stop what we're doing and ask how God's inspired, unerring, infallible, completely dependable, authoritative word speaks to our current moment. If you would, open your Bible to Romans chapter 11. We've been walking through major texts over the last couple months on what the Bible has to say about what the church is all about, how it's supposed to work, what its mission is, and how you and I are involved in God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Um, the last couple of weeks we've heard from a couple of preachers who have done an able job, and that has been intentional on my part to have them preach during this time. Uh, many of you have been praying for me because I've been uh, preparing some, for some major exams for my uh, school program, program that I'm in, and, and uh, I'm happy to say I, I passed my, my comprehensive exams for my PhD, which means, not that I'm done, which means that I have finished all of my coursework and now I get to write uh, my, my dissertation. So I will be dissertating over the course of the next several months. And so please continue to pray for me. I was thinking of, uh, as I finished one, this major stage, I, I thought of a, uh, a, a little clip of a video that I had seen from Kobe Bryant in 2009. He had just finished game two of the NBA Finals and he had a very stoic, serious look on his face. And people, uh, the, the news reporters, they had the cameras in his face, all that, asked him the question, um, aren't you happy? Shouldn't you be happy? And he goes, what's there to be happy about? Job's not finished. Job finished? I don't think so. And so, that's, if you ever heard the Mamba mentality, that was it on display. And so that's how I feel today. We were thankful. Um, and now, job's not finished. More to do. And so, uh, thank you for praying need to slay this dragon, continue praying for my wife, who has been so supportive of me. Um, so with that being said, that's, that's kind of what's been happening over the last few weeks. Uh, so we'll return to our series on the church next week, um, but this week we need to address what is at hand. Here are, here are the facts. Um, as of Friday, in the conflict that has been raging in the Middle East, 1,400 Israelis, as we all know by this point we're killed on October 7th by uh, an Islamic terrorist group called Hamas uh, that is headquartered out of Gaza City. Uh, young and old were killed. At least 200 people that we know of have been uh, taken hostage, and so far four have been released. Let's be very clear on what's happened on October 7th. Uh, it was not only horrific, but to use Christian terminology and a Christian understanding, what happened on that day was demonic. And it was just a horrific display of people made in the image of God barbarically killing others who were also made in the image of God. Since that time, 7,300 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza by Israeli airstrikes um, that has claimed to take out military targets, and of course, as we've seen, if you've seen the images, you've seen the news, you know that that's also taken out many civilians, including a significant number of children. You've been probably hearing about that hospital there. Of course, there's much talk on the other side about how defenders, from defenders of Israel, about Hamas using people as human shields, all this that's going on. In total, there's been about 24,000 that have been injured in a close 
uh, on both sides altogether, and about two million who have been displaced. You've seen the responses from the world. Uh, you've likely seen, if you've watched the news or you have a phone, you've seen all sorts of images uh, from protests, I think significant protests that have happened. You've seen people tearing down um, pictures and posters of innocent Israeli hostages. You've seen the pundits being giving their opinion in various ways. Sadly, even in our own country, there's been hate crimes against Muslims as well as against Jewish people that have resulted in death, even here in the U.S. And so you're watching the world respond. And the question inevitably comes up for us is, you know, how do we respond to something like this? And when a conflict having to do with the Middle East comes up, um, I it, it's like clockwork. I'll hear Christians ask questions. Some, some of you have even asked me these questions. Um, are we in the end, end times because something is happening with Israel? Uh, what's our relationship to Israel? Jesus was Jewish, so should we by default be on the side of Israel here? Doesn't God say to Abraham, this is probably one of the most well-known ones, doesn't God say to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, and so if you want blessing, shouldn't you support Israel? These are all important topics and questions to raise, and these are the things that are coming up by Christians. A couple of other observations I've made, though, in, in this in this moment are this, that usually when these questions come up, the people with the tinfoil hats tend to also come out too and start saying very, very silly things. There's just not really a nice way to say it. Silly and just, yeah, we'll just use that word. That's a good word to stick with. Um, with, any, with a complete lack of consideration for what the Bible actually says about Israel herself. I think that's the first thing that has come to my mind. The other thing has been, uh, there was an image that I saw of a baby being pulled out of the rubble uh, from an Orthodox church uh, in the Gaza Strip. And so that's, that's where all this is taking place. It's taking place in other places, West Bank and north of Israel as well, but focusing on Gaza has been uh, primary, that there was uh, an Israeli missile that hit across the street, but it ended up taking out the Orthodox Church, a significant portion as well, and there was a, a picture of a baby that had lost his life, and he was being pulled out. And I thought of that image, and two things come to mind. First, understand there are Christians in Gaza, like what brave people, Palestinian Christians who are there, who are on the receiving end of all of this. But also to think about how that, that doesn't fit, if you're very pro-Israel, to think about what about the innocents that are there. So, as Christians, at the very least, you ought to have sorrow for what happened on October 7th, but you can't help but have that same sorrow to see so many other innocents, precious life being snuffed out since that time. Most of my life, this country has, the United States has been at war, and so the reason why I bring this up for us as a pastor in this moment is because I do not want us to lose our humanity as this conflict, who knows how long it's going to go. And don't forget, there was another conflict that we thought would last for a short period of time called the Ukraine War. Remember that one? That's still going on as well. And I hope you have continued to pray for that. Um, but that is continuing to happen as well. We should lament. But what gives Christians hope what gives us the ability to keep our humanity in all of this as we watch a world that is going mad is that we serve a sovereign God who is accomplishing something greater. And that's what I want us to see today. 
a greater plan of redemption that you and I could not have thought up of. I hope that when we're done today, you will go, I could not have thought of that on my own. Only God could have done that. So with that in mind, I want us to read Romans 11.1. I have no slides this morning. Changing up a little, little bit just for today. We're going to read the whole chapter. There will be nothing more important that I will say this morning than reading from this word. Everything else will be secondary. But let's read it together so that we would get the divine perspective that gives us hope in this moment. Here we go. Romans 11, 1. I ask, Paul says, then has God rejected his people? These are the ethnic Israelites he's talking about. Answer, Pauline, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Israel, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people from whom he foreknew. Do you not know that what Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. It's a great story. You should read it sometime, where Elijah goes to Mount Carmel, and there is a contest between the pagan, the, 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 the pagan gods to see who could set the altar on fire, and God brings down the fire through Elijah. It's a great story, but you got to read what comes afterwards. He goes into a depression because the, the uh, king Ahab and his wife Jezebel go after him, say, we won't rest until we take Elijah out, and Elijah doesn't get the response of victory that he was going, thought he was going to get. Instead, he ends up hiding, and he says, Lord, I'm the only one that's left, but how does God reply to him? Verse 4, he says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed down the knee to Baal. I'm doing something more, Elijah, than what you can see. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. You should underline that word and hold on to it. Chosen by grace. But, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. God chooses to harden his people and leave a remnant behind. Paul asked the question, so I ask, did they stumble, these people, the ethnic Israelites, in order that they may fall? Answer again, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, to you and me, so as to make Israel Jealous. And now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I have magnified my ministry in order to somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and to save some of them. 
For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off in you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't get arrogant. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then you will say, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Yeah, that's true. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. And for if you were cut off, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree. And then Paul puts it together. Look at me, look with me at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Here it is. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience... So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, to me, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then it's like at the very end here, Paul can't help after going and giving this glorious description of God's plan for the Gentiles and the Israelites, he breaks out into praise. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of God or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in your economy, the first will be last, and the last will be first, and yet you are still patient to endure towards those who are wicked against you. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters as we spend just a few moments now, help us to keep the divine perspective so that we would not be fearful like the world, but we would be people with hope. Amen. What I would like to do right now is not get lost in the trees, 
but I want to give you a 20,000 foot of what Paul is doing in Romans. Romans might be the most important book of the Bible. It, it has impacted so many throughout the last 2,000 years. But if you read it without understanding what Paul is meaning to accomplish in history, you won't be able to unlock it. And so if you give me a few moments here, I want to explain to you what Paul is doing, and it'll make Romans 11 so significant. I want to encourage you sometime, these were meant to be, these letters of the New Testament, they were meant to be read all the way through. Just as an encouragement to you, think of it this way. You would never pull open an email and read it halfway through, Maybe depending on the email, if you like the person or not, but you, you should read it all the way through, but, if, but you don't go, well, let me go get a coffee break in the middle of it. When you and I read our Bible, we tend, because we know some of these books are, are longer, we'll read one chapter, and we'll read one chapter a day or, or whatever, but you'll find that if you do that, you'll miss the themes that are interwoven all the way through. In the book of Romans, when you read it all the way through, one of the things that you're going to see is that there is a... That Paul is addressing the relationship between both Jews and Gentiles. When you have an eye for that, you're going to see that all throughout the book of Romans. Let me show you what I mean. Paul says, Romans 1, 16 and 17, famous verse. If you're in Juana, you should know it. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the who first? Who, do we know? For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Question. You might have grown up with that verse your whole life. Why does Paul say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Why would he have a need to say that unless someone is saying something negative about that message? You ever think about that? Why does he say, I'm not ashamed? Why does he just say, gospel's awesome. Here's what it can do. Maybe there's something going on here. I think there is. Perhaps there's people who are disparaging it. Here's the fundamental issue that's going on. It seems like this wonderful message about a Jewish Messiah who has come to bring reconciliation and overcome my sin and yours, it's not catching on with the people for who it came from. It's not catching on with the Jews. If this message is so good, why aren't the Jews just responding in mass, Paul? Why is the Gentiles and not the Jews? What's going on here? This is the key. If you understand, this is the problem of the lack of Jewish response to the gospel. That's what Paul is addressing here. And so he writes to explain the gospel and to defend it and explain what he is, God is really doing in the lives of these two peoples. Here's something interesting to think about. In AD 41, there's a guy named Claudius, and he is, he is just a bit of history to help you understand what's happening here. In AD 41, there was, a, there was a Roman emperor named Claudius, and he established an edict, and he said to everyone who was in Rome, if you're a Jew, you got to get out, you got to go. And that existed all the way until AD 53, so about, uh, AD 54, pardon me, about 13 years. And so once you imagine this scenario, and how uh, scholars have looked at this and imagined how that would have affected the church, because the first Christians that would have been in Rome, presumably, would have been Jewish people that would have come from uh, perhaps Pentecost. Uh, Acts 2, and would have eventually made their way up there. It's very easy to draw a parallel and imagine how that might have affected things in Rome, okay? Imagine the local government said, all of you with German Mennonite background, you have to leave the city of Huron. What would that do to Bethesda? 
that, that, that would change things drastically right for us. There would be a significant portion of us who would have to get out of Dodge, and there would be a remnant that would be left, right? That's what would happen. And so imagine you have to go somewhere else for over a decade. Um, those who would be in leadership positions, key volunteers, um, uh, your spot in your chair, no longer a pew, would be empty, and you'd have to go elsewhere. And then what would happen in the meantime? The, the people who are left, they, they end up filling those positions. They're sitting in your chair on a Sunday morning. And imagine after over 10, 13 years, the local government says, okay, you can come back. And so you come back, how do you think that's going to go? Now, I'll tell you this. When I go back to my home church um, in San Antonio, I haven't been a member there since 2010, but I have this thing that wells up within me every single time I go back. I, I go back and I see new people in my home church. What are they doing there? What are you doing in my church? And, and, and that's the first part of me that, that does that. The next part of me goes, well, the church isn't just an organization. It's an organism, and it's, and it's a living thing. And so it's, it's constantly in flux and changing. And you imagine that same kind of feeling that might have hap would happen with us, that there would be those of us who come back and, and the others who would already be here would go, we did pretty fine without you, right? In fact, most of your people have rejected this message, right? You can see the parallel here. This is, this is what many have looked at when they've looked at Romans and gone, this is what Paul is addressing, a conflict within the church at Rome between Jew and Gentile. You have Gentiles who are saying, look, your people are rejecting this message, and look how we've responded so positively. And you have Jews who might have said, but we are the original people. We have the ethnic blood in our veins. And so what Paul does, if you have that view in mind, when you read Romans 1 through 3, it's going to change everything. You'll read Romans 1, and you'll see how that Paul goes after the Gentiles. And he say, you're sinners. He goes after then the Jews. In chapter 2, oh man, do you think you're any better? No, you're a sinner too. Just because you have the Torah, just because you've been circumcised, just because you have all those things, it does not matter unless you have been circumcised in the heart. That's what Paul says. And so do you see how this would affect how you would read Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's he saying? All, that's everybody. That's Jew and Gentile. Okay, that's what he's getting at in context here. And so he then says, all are sinful, but Christ has come to take the wrath of God so that we could be justified by taking his righteousness as he takes our sin. God justifies, he circumcises by faith the Jew and the uncircumcised by faith the Gentile. He is the savior of the world. So when you read Romans 1 through 8, it is a long explanation about how all are sinners. Sin is universal. All are subject to judgment. All need to be saved by the second Adam, Romans 5, Jesus Christ. And how that second Adam has placed the Spirit of God in us. See Romans 8 if you need encouragement ever and you're in a low spot. And so Paul is addressing these two groups in friction. And this leads us now to Romans 9 through 11. If you had a chance this week to, to read through it, it is a glorious passage. It is not an appendix to Romans. It is leading up to this moment where Paul is now addressing the question, okay, why aren't the Jews responding? And he says, let me tell you what our Lord is doing. In verse 6, he says, it is not. I'm in 9-6. If you want to back up there, Romans 9-6. 
He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not because the message has a problem, friends. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Do you see the distinction that he's making there? Just because you're ethnically part of Israel doesn't mean you're really part of Israel. He'll go on to say, there's a true Israel. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. You have to have that circumcision Not of flesh, but of the heart. And so Paul is addressing here ethnic Jews who have rejected Christ. And has he said that the promise has failed? No. So Paul then goes on to explain what is happening. He says, here's what God is doing. Here's who our God is. This is a God who rejected Esau but chose Jacob. This is a God who hardened Pharaoh's heart so he could deliver the Israelites out of bondage in the land of Egypt into Canaan. He is in charge. He is glorious and mighty. And he can have mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy on. And if you don't like that, you are like the clay saying to the potter, I don't like how you made me. In other words, you should be quiet. These are tough things to wrestle with, but it is in our word, and we follow it. What does this sovereign God choose to do? He chooses to bring in a people, the Gentiles. He brings them in. He brings you and I. When I say Gentile, I'm meaning everyone who's not a Jew. That's how I'm using that here. To save the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, not by works of righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ imputed, given to us, so we could put it on like a cloak and by faith receive it. And so we are saved because of what Christ has done. And you believe this good news because there are people who have come to bring it to you. And when you believe it, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart and you are saved. And those who brought that good news, Paul says, man, they have beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? And yet Israel has rejected this news. The problem isn't with the message. It's those who are receiving it. In fact, God says, if you look at the very end of Romans 10, he says, I have been found by those who did not seek me, Gentiles. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to disobedient and contrary people. And so our God can do whatever he wants, and he has chosen, this is the key, to harden Israel, and to bring the Gentiles in. Is there any hope for these Jews, though? Is the gospel pointless for them? Paul says no. And this is where we get to Romans 11. And he says, here's what God is doing. Throughout all of this, he has saved a remnant of God's original chosen people, the Jews. Not in mass, but there's a remnant of them. He has brought the Gentiles in by mass belief. That's Paul's mission has been to the Gentiles. And while he has done so, he has hardened Israel so that the Gentiles could come in. But the hope would be this, and this is the mission, that as the Gentiles come in and this group is hardened, Israel would see how these people get to be called part of God's family, and they would get jealous, and they would come in as well. And so Paul says, my mission that I have is to rile up my Jewish brothers and sisters and I get them jealous so that they would respond to the gospel of Christ. And so it's not as though there's a complete hardening of God's 
original chosen people, but it is a partial hardening. By the way, I should tell you this, just so you know where I am at on this. This is one of the reasons I am not a Calvinist. I am not someone who, so when I say Calvinist, I'm thinking John Calvin. So I got all this stuff like downloaded in my head because I just took a test on Friday. If you read the Institutes by John Calvin, you'll see in book three, he talks about what is called single predestination or a double election for individuals, that for some people he chooses God in his sovereignty, I choose you, I choose you, not you, not you, you, on the basis of his sovereignty. And they will base that on Romans 9 because of how God in his sovereignty gets to do what he wants on the basis of what is said there. I want to say this. I don't think that is the purpose for which Paul is writing in Romans 9. Because it is not a complete hardening, it is a partial hardening. This isn't the end of the story for Israel. Don't parachute into the Bible, into the middle of a passage, and read it the way you want to read it. Read it the way Paul intends for it to be read. Romans 9 is not the end of the story. Romans 11 continues on the story. And it says that this hardening is for a time, but there's more for this nation. There's more for this people. God isn't done with his chosen people, and he will save Israel. Look at the very end of Romans 11, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be aware of this mystery. It's that partial hardening that's come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So when this job is done of hardening and these people come in, all Israel will be saved. All right, pastor. When will all Israel be saved? Verse 26, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. Paul is quoting Isaiah 59, 20. And there, in that passage, there is a remnant of Israel left. And Yahweh God has come to deliver his people. When you read 1 Thessalonians 1.10, you'll read about who this deliverer is. The one whom we wait for, the son who will come from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers, the deliverer, us, uh, us from the wrath to come at his second coming. When Christ comes, he will bring deliverance and bring his original chosen people into salvation. Look at me. God's not finished with his people. The story's not over. Yet, this moment that we find ourselves in today is just a moment in history. And so you take this analogy, this illustration that Paul uses of the, uh, of the olive branch here. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out, right? You see what Paul's doing. He says there's, a, there's, there's an olive tree, and that olive tree is Israel. And there's some branches on there that have rejected God because of their unbelief, and they have been taken off. And yet others have been, other branches have been grafted on. Those who have been taken off are unbelieving Israels, Israelites. Those who have been grafted on, it's you and me. And so we're not original, but we've been brought into this one people of God. He's placed us in his family. And he wants to take those branches, though, that have been cut off and bring them back in again. So here's the application for you and I and how we ought to think about these branches that have been taken off. Don't get arrogant and think that Israel does not matter. 
Don't get arrogant. You were no better when God brought you back into his fold. When God, when God put you onto his tree by way of grafting you in. And then imagine this. Imagine what would happen if God took those original branches that had been taken off. Man, they've got, they've got the blessings of God. They have so much history, so much that God has done through the, this people. Can you imagine what would happen if God brought them back? Man, if, if, if their hardening has led to all of our salvation, can you imagine the blessing that would come if they were saved themselves? That's God's plan for the Gentile and the Jew together, that they would come together as this one olive tree, at the end of all things, grafted into the one family of God. That's the outlook we, you and I should have. That's the hope we should look for for the future. And so I want to give you, I want you to think about a few things by way of what we have just looked at for our present moment. No matter what Hamas does, they will never be able to wipe out a people that God still has a plan for. No matter what happens in this conflict in the coming days. Just read last night about how there seems to be another incursion into Gaza and you just go, what is going to happen? You hear the chant from activists who say, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Which means that from the Mediterranean all the way to the Jordan River, Israel will be eradicated and be no more, and a Muslim state will be established. Look, I don't care what kind of pithy statement you come up with. God says, job's not finished. Job finished? I don't think so. It's not over yet. Second thing I want you to think about is this. Both sides of this conflict are godless because they do not have the one true Messiah. Both are. For our own souls, I think this might be the reality that you and I need to think about the most. Both Muslims who deny that Jesus is God and Jews who deny that he is the Messiah are lost. Are Muslims saved? The answer is no, because they do not consider Jesus to be God. And modern Israelites, modern Israelis, are they saved? Have you thought about this? We've talked about this here before, I think last year. They have the Old Testament. So what do we do with those who believe in Judaism? Are, are, they, are they Christians? I wonder how you would answer that. I think the simplest and best way, I know what I answer this, and I know I've said this before. It's all about whether you believe in Jesus or not. Do they believe in Christ, and are they saved? The answer is they did believe in God. They don't, but they will. That's the truth. They did, they don't, but they will. There are some people who have looked at Israel and have looked at God's plan. There's... There's this term called classic dispensationalism. It has this view that God will save Israel by another means than how he saves the church in our day. And I just want to say, in the kindest possible way, that's nonsense. There's only one way, truth, in the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. The same means by which Jesus is going to deliver his original chosen people is the same means by which he has delivered you and I. His blood was sufficient for us it is sufficient for them. I want you to think about this, too. If he has this grand plan that he is doing, this is the thing that always gets me. Whenever you read your Bible, you should ask the question, what does this show me about the nature of who God is? You may be here today, and you go, Israel has nothing to do with what's going on in my life right now. So why are we talking about this? 
I show this to you to see God's overarching, to show you God's overarching plan of redemption, to show you his patience and his steadfastness and that he is in control. If he can do this, I love saying this to you. I love showing you this. That if he can do this with his people, do you think that he is not willing to endure and also be patient with you? Do you think that he is done with you, friend? Of course he's not. The story isn't over for Israel. It isn't over for the Gentiles. It isn't over for you and I. It isn't over for this church. He is still on the move. Let me say the obvious thing, too. As you look through all of this, I would encourage us that we would add to our prayer journals serious prayer for what is happening. Don't just look at the TV screen or at the news and go, man, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Instead, you ought to say, Lord, I pray for an intervention that you would, you would bring to end all of this. Pray for innocent life to be spared. Pray against anti-Semitism. Pray for the fabric of this American society. Pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be more powerful to young men of whom so many are giving themselves over to what seems to be a powerful God that is Allah, that is just a counterfeit by comparison. There is a day that is marked on God's calendar, and this is the hope that we have, where he will eradicate every single terror organization, every false religion, Hamas, Hezbollah, all of them, and you and I will remember them no more. And we will be in eternity with our Lord, and we'll say, do you remember what those world religions are called? I don't remember. Hezbollah, what? I don't remember. I don't remember how wonderful of a moment that will be. Never mind that, though. Let's go worship our Savior. I can't wait for that day. Revelation 21. We will exist in the new Jerusalem when the heavens come down. Do you ever think about what happens after all this is over? Do you think that the end of the story is heaven? It's not. Heaven comes down. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. And when that moment happens, there will be a new Jerusalem in which we will be with our Lord. And I love the way John in his vision describes it. He describes new Jerusalem with 12 gates. And each of those gates have the 12 tribes of Israel named on them. And that, those, and that city has also 12 foundations of the 12 apostles of the Lamb who preach the gospel to the world. You will see it there. Jew and Gentile coming together. Jew together with white, black, Hispanic, Korean, and yes, also Palestinians who put their faith in Jesus Christ. All who put their faith in Jesus Christ. What a day we long for when God makes all wrongs right. Or I love the way one author has put it. This Stillness will one day be interrupted by a shout from the eastern sky, by a joyful call with a distinctly northern Galilean dialect. And that's when life will begin to get interesting. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.